Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I am Ron Martin. And we're going to have a phenomenal show for you today. We're actually going to be interviewing Dr. Gary Habermas, Dr. Craig Blomberg, Dr. Ben Witherington, and Dr. Doug Groteis about academic trends. You'll get to hear from all four of these noted scholars and experts in these fields about the trends in academia. You know, we've all heard kind of the lie that you have to kind of check your faith at the door when you enter college. What we're finding is atheism, agnosticism, and the criticism against Christianity is what's actually getting blown to pieces in academia in modern times. And Nate, this is particularly true in biblical studies. The historicity and reliability of the documents that we have collected and call our Bible is where we really see a lot of these trends changing radically. When I was in school in the 70s and 80s, that's the 1970s and 80s, there were two trends that were really predominant. One was called the documentary hypothesis, and this was relative to the Old Testament, that said the Old Testament really is not an ancient book at all, that it was fabricated, that it wasn't written by those that claimed to have written it, and that the church is really in kind of the dark ages still for believing it. That hypothesis in the 1980s, if you would have taken a survey among university professors, you'd probably find 80% of them that believe in that Today, if you were to ask university professors, particularly those in Near Eastern studies, how many of them believed in the documentary hypothesis, you'd probably get less than 10% that would support that position. Yet I heard of a college professor who is talking about that this week. It's, it's still promoting in our this week. It's and still in this, the textbooks. The same professor was promoting the idea that we can't trust Luke as a historian in either the book of Luke or the book of Acts, which he authored because he was historically unreliable citing the census of Caesar as evidence against that. And apparently this guy has not been doing his due diligence, but we see that a lot. Yep. People maybe that went to grad school 30 years ago are kind of in the old era and, of it's, thinking. And stuck in that thinking. You know, relative to the New Testament, the thing that was also predominant in the late 20th century was this thing called the Jesus Seminar that basically operated on the premise that the New Testament documents, particularly the Gospels about Jesus, were fabrications written anywhere from 100 years to 200 years after the time of Jesus. And again, the same principle applies if you was to ask people then, ask university professors then, not just in the church, but outside the church, well over 70% of them would say that they believe that the New Testament documents were written probably about 200 years after the time of Jesus. Today, that has completely flipped. Only about 20% of these academics would believe a late date of the New Testament. Almost all of them now will say that not only are the New Testament documents earlier than we thought, they're much more reliable than we thought, and they are, in fact, historically accurate. So we're going to ask all four of these experts about the state of academic trends today. Let's start off by asking Dr. Gary Habermas about academic trends. He is the Distinguished Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy and Chairman of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University. He has also authored 36 books, including The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality, The Historical Jesus, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ, The Risen Jesus and Future Hope, In Defense of Miracles, A Comprehensive Case for God's Action in History, 
what's good about feeling bad, finding purpose and a path through your pain, the Thomas factor, using your doubts to draw closer to God, resurrected, tangible evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, and dealing with doubt. Again, those are just a few of his numerous books. He's also been quoted in many other books and is known around the world as the expert on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Habermas. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. No problem. Glad for the opportunity. You know, it's fascinating, Dr. Habermas. I know uh, in the U.K. we're seeing a, a large part of academia actually more open to the historicity of the New Testament and the issue of who Jesus is and what he did. Uh, do you see that same kind of movement in the United States among well-trained uh, college professors and university professors? Is there a trend that is moving that way as well here? Toward the right, you mean? Yeah. I guess it depends on what topic you're talking about. On the resurrection, I have argued in a an article I published in a non-evangelical journal that the trend is to the right on the resurrection. And I think the trend is to the right because that's where the evidence is. That's mm. where scholarship is going. One example, a former uh, professor at Duke, and before that he was at Oxford University, E.P. Sanders, until his retirement, he was a very, very prominent player in New Testament trends and is not himself a right-wing individual at all describes himself as an historian, and in his book, The Human Figure of Jesus, he gives a list of where scholarship is and where scholars will say we are today. And amazingly, in a list of things we know about Jesus, he lists more than once in this book that one known fact about Jesus is that his followers saw him again after his death. And then he adds, in what form he appeared, I can't say. I can't comment on, you know, I guess he means whether it was bodily or something different. Hmm. But one of these facts, now the key thing is, he's not telling you what his view is. He's listing where scholarship is today. And he says that scholars allow that after his death, Jesus' followers saw him again. Now, I... I wouldn't even say that myself. I wouldn't even say that that's where scholarship is today, that they, that they actually saw Jesus. But it's listed in a, you know, this list. So I think scholarship is moving that way. About 15 years ago, Raymond Brown, shortly before his death, he wrote a book on where Christology is today, where contemporary Christology is. And he said that in his opinion, most people are on the, I forgot what he called it, but conservative, conservative plus side. I guess, I don't know what conservative plus means. I guess <laughs> it's just sort of a, a moderate, moderately conservative. In other words, scholarship for Brown was just to the, it was to the right of center. It is moving to the right. I definitely think that that's the case with resurrection studies. In the last 30 years, there's been a widespread recognition. I'll give you one example. When I was in graduate school in the mid-70s, Almost nobody but evangelicals thought that the empty tomb was historical. If you found somebody who defended the empty tomb, in almost all cases, they were evangelical scholars. Hmm. But today, the majority of New Testament scholars, in other words, something over 50%, I've argued that it's more like two-thirds or three-quarters, allow the empty tomb. Hmm. So there, there is one example of where scholarship has really moved. Now, these are just current trends. 
many have argued that, you know, trends ebb and flow. But right now, this is a extremely good time for young scholars to be doing their PhDs and mm. and getting out there and doing some publishing. And it's a good milieu to see what's going on because it's, it's just it's just an exciting time to do research, in my opinion. Yeah, fascinating. The evidence looks really good right now. Mm -hmm. I, I just think it's a fascinating area of study. Yep. And uh, Hey, Dr. Yeah. Avermas, thank you so okay, guys. much. Have a good weekend. Yep. God you bless. Too. Next, let's hear what Dr. Blomberg has to say about academic trends. He is the Distinguished Professor of the New Testament at Denver Seminary right here in Colorado. He has authored and edited many books, including Gospel Perspectives, Volume 6, The Miracles of Jesus, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, Interpreting the Parables, Jesus and the Gospels, An Introduction and Survey, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, A Biblical Theology of Material Possessions, The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel, Making Sense of the New Testament, Three Important Questions, and Contagious Holiness, Jesus' Meals with Sinners. He has also been quoted in numerous other books, like Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. I would encourage you to pick that book up. You can find it on Amazon, and you'll enjoy Dr. Blomberg's section in that book. He's known around the world as one of the foremost experts on the New Testament and the Gospels. So welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Blomberg. Good morning, Doctor. How are you? Good. Yeah. How are you? Doing great. It's great to hear you. Thank you so much for taking a few moments with us. In general, in academia in the U.S., regarding New Testament studies, we certainly know the conservative evangelical stance on the inspiration of Scripture and that it is God's revelation to us about these events and about the person of Jesus. Outside the evangelical circle, do you see things turning a little bit more sympathetic with the New Testament documents as historically reliable? Is there a trend that's moving toward better scholarship and better awareness of these documents as truth? There is very much a trend. In the last 30 years or so, what has often been called in-house third quest of the historical Jesus, hmm. after, as you might guess, two other phases of scholarly investigation, really for the first time has taken Jesus seriously as a Jewish teacher and in light of information explosion and unprecedented access to ancient sources, uh, we are understanding the meaning and significance of what Jesus did and said in early first century Israeli Jewish context. There are numerous writers Unfortunately, perhaps not as well-known as Bart Ehrman or some of the most left-leaning skeptics mm. who, without even presupposing Christian faith, some of these are Jewish scholars. Somebody like an Amy Jill Levine at Vanderbilt comes to mind. Some of them are primarily archaeologists by trade, like James Charlesworth at Princeton University. These folks are saying there's a lot that, uh, on purely historical grounds, can be accepted from the Gospels, even without wearing any hat of a, a particular religious faith. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you this afternoon. And... Thank you very much. Right. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And next, we're going to talk to Dr. Ben Witherington about his views of where academic trends are going today. Dr. Ben Witherington received his Master's of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and his Ph.D. from the University of Durham in England. He is a renowned biblical scholar and professor of New Testament studies at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. He has authored 37 books with another seven on the way. 
Some of his books include What Have They Done With Jesus, The Jesus Quest, The Third Search for the Jew of Nazareth, New Testament History, A Narrative Account, Women, and the Genesis of Christianity and the Gospel Code. He has been interviewed on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, and other TV shows and radio programs as well. You might remember his interview in The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He is an expert on the evidence for the biblical manuscripts and the person of Jesus Christ, and I have found his blogs in particular to be very helpful concerning issues like the Da Vinci Code, Bart Ehrman, and other apologetical questions. Follow his blogs at benwitherington.blogspot.com, blog.beliefnet.com, slash Bible and Culture, and now www.patheos.com, slash blogs, slash Bible and Culture. Hello, Dr. Witherington. You've got him. Hey, hey, Dr. Witherington. I'm thrilled to have you here on The God Solution today. Well, good. Glad to be with you. Just out of curiosity, where do you see academic trends going? Do you sense that academic trends are going more in a favorable direction towards Christianity or maybe more in a critical direction? Oh, I think the latter on the whole. I mean, for example, I was had an exchange with my friend Larry Hurtado, who taught for many years in Edinburgh, now retired. There is actually a debate going on in the UK as to whether a person could do a PhD in the Old Testament or New Testament without having to learn the biblical languages. That is, you could simply study the book as a form of literary criticism, and you don't need to know Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. Now, that's an ah-historical approach to the Bible. Yes, there's lots to be learned from literary analysis of the Bible, plenty, and lots of good stuff, okay? But the idea that you could be an adequately trained Old Testament or New Testament scholar without learning biblical languages is a non-starter. And the fact that there's actually a debate about this in even less Christian Britain uh, compared to America, shows you where this is going. There is um, a trend towards going away from a historical analysis of the Bible or an archaeological analysis of the Bible or historical reasoning. They want to simply treat the Bible as great literature. And so, yeah, I would say B, not A. We, we're not heading in a more biblocentric and um, fair-minded way of reading the biblical text. We're, we're headed towards, frankly, a more Gnostic and purely spiritual way or literary way of reading the Bible. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Dr. Witherington, for joining us today on The God Solution. My pleasure. So Witherington's answer was a little bit different than Dr. Habermas's and Dr. Blomberg's, and it's not that he was saying that scholarship is going contrary to an evangelical perspective. Rather, he's saying that some of the critical aspects of academia are now just going an entirely different direction. Instead of evaluating it historically or evidentially, they're beginning to just say, let's just evaluate it as literature. In other so, words, in other words, let's just ignore it rather than deal with the fact that we find it reliable. Absolutely. In closing, we're going to ask Dr. Groteis the same question. He's recently released a book titled Christian Apologetics, which is an incredible volume, around 750 pages 
of evidence that will lead anybody reading it to the conclusion that the Christian worldview is the most coherent and logical possible explanation of this universe and that we should follow Jesus Christ, believing his claims and receiving all that he has to offer for us. He is the author of numerous books, including Christianity That Counts, Confronting the New Age, Deceived by the Light, On Jesus, On Pascal, Revealing the New Age Jesus, The Soul in Cyberspace, Truth Decay, Unmasking the New Age, In Defense of Natural Theology, Jesus in an Age of Controversy, and Hot Off the Presses, Christian Apologetics. He's an authority on the New Age, Apologetics, Philosophy, and Ethics. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Grotheis. Hi, Nate. How are you? I'm doing great. Where do you think the academic trends are right now? Are, is the momentum more on the side of the theists or more on the side of the atheists? I think there's a strong movement for intellectually arguing for theism in physics, in biology. There's certainly a strong movement of Christian philosophers that has gelled and really developed significantly in the last 35, 45 years. Now, is it a tidal wave that's about to swamp secularism? Not yet. But if you look at the general intellectual scene, let's say, of America in 2012 as opposed to 1970 or 1960, things are much brighter because we have the defense of Big Bang cosmology supporting the creation of the universe. We have so much information about design and physics and biochemistry and so on. And we have world-class philosophers challenging atheism and giving arguments for God's existence. People like Alvin Plantinga, Richard Swinburne, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, and others. So I see the Christian theists mounting a charge and gaining momentum, but it is certainly resisted because the academy and also the sciences in general are much more secular than the population at large. Now, some people use that argument to say, well, that's because the more education you get, the smarter you get, the more well-informed you become, the less religious you are, because you see religion as a superstition. But that doesn't necessarily follow, and it's actually rather naive, because it's not the case that the academy is a perfectly objective, rational world. Uh, people have their biases, their prejudices, their disputes, and in some cases, they're simply not very informed, such as the professor you mentioned who just gets up in front of the class and says there is no truth. Well, a freshman with a little bit of logic can refute that, and it doesn't matter if that professor has a Ph.D. or 12 Ph.D.s. It's a ridiculous statement. So I find reasons for encouragement at the intellectual level and the academic level. I also think of the strong arguments for the reliability of the Bible and the resurrection of Christ that people like Gary Habermas and William Lane Craig and N.T. Wright and Ben Witherington are giving, that's very heartening as well. And there's a tremendous wealth of material out there, not just my book, but works by William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, at a more popular level. Uh, Lee Strobel's done some very good work, Sean McDowell and others. There's really been a renaissance in 
Christian philosophy and Christian apologetics in recent decades at all levels, the highest, the intermediate, and the more introductory levels. Thank you so much again for being on the show today. You're welcome. Happy to be with you. Have a great afternoon. You too. Bye. Mm, bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed hearing from each of these experts about the state of academia and how that relates to faith in God. We talked a lot about some of the documentary aspects of evidence, but in all areas of academia, there seems to have been a shift from agnosticism and atheism to theism and even Christianity. I want to mention a few prominent examples of this. Antony Flew died in 2010, a couple years ago, but he was considered the most prominent atheist of the past 100 years. Shortly before he died, he came to belief in God and even wrote a book titled There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. So there you have it. The most notorious atheist in academia of the past century came to belief in God. You know, Nate, what's interesting about that is I had the opportunity to hear Dr. Flew speak at UCLA once. And he was very challenging uh, to listen to, uh, certainly from the standpoint of a believer. But I actually engaged back in the early days of what we now call the Internet. I actually exchanged a few letters of correspondence with him and a few emails when that came along. And he was such a gracious man. And it was fascinating, uh, as I read his book, to see the process that led him to the idea of theism as a viable alternative for modern thought. I highly recommend this book for anybody who considers himself a skeptic or an agnostic to engage in this book by Dr. Anthony Flew and explore the evidence that is there. It's really fascinating. Other prominent intellectuals that are high up in the academic world would include physicist Dr. Robert Jastrow, founder and director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. And before he died, he wrote God and the Astronomers, where he said, now we see the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time and a flash of light and energy. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Hmm. Kind of a good way to describe the show today about (laughs) academia coming around to the perspective that the Bible just might be what it says it is. And finally, I wanted to conclude with one more famous current example, that of geneticist Dr. Francis Collins, who led the Human Genome Project and is currently the director of the National Institutes of Health, appointed by President Obama, who is an outspoken evangelical Christian. Well, Ron, we heard from some scholars about the state of academic affairs and how they relate to evangelical Christianity. We've heard from some others that we weren't able to interview, unfortunately, that agree with that sentiment. And before we go... I'd like to kind of put a personal perspective on all this because sometimes the evidence can just seem like head knowledge and until it actually connects with reality, it can be kind of insignificant. And one of the best ways for it to connect with reality is to hear how that has caused a change or a difference in a person's life. And so today we're going to talk to Brandon, who's in the studio with us, and he's going to tell us a little bit about what has happened in his life since he first came to trust Christ. 
Yeah, so like Nate said, my name is Brandon Cox. I'm a student on campus, and I just want to share a little bit of a story of just about my life. The Apostle Peter talks about being able to share the reason for the hope that you have, and right now I can honestly say that I have more hope than ever before, more than I could ever imagine, and specifically that's because of God. So I want to share a little bit about just how I was brought up and specifically how I now have hope in the God of the universe, and more than hope. A personal relationship. He's my father, and it's very real. So I grew up raised going to church kind of traditionally. And what I mean by that is we went just to put a check mark in the box. It was just kind of just to do it. We went twice a year, mainly Christmas and Easter. And at least from my perspective, is so we can tell people that, yeah, we go to church. But like Nate was saying, it was a lot of head knowledge. It was a lot of just you know, principles, there wasn't very much relationship. I didn't really know God very much at all. I don't even know if I knew that I could know God. In fact, I know a lot of you students and just community out there, you guys could probably relate to this, that I felt closest to God when I was in the mountains, when I was in the beautiful surroundings. And that was the first kind of evidence to me that God is real and that he is speaking to me through just the beauty of this. I look around and I know it's not an accident. I know that God is real and That was one way God first started to reach out to me. But yeah, just growing up, I really got involved maybe like in high school with a group that was really focused on sharing the word, sharing God's truth in the Bible. And that was really rare to me. You know, I said I grew up in the church, but I'd never even heard very much scripture in my life. And, you know, that should be a surprise growing up in a church. But I started hearing scripture like John 10.10 says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come so that you can have life and have it to the full. And I wanted that. I wanted to have that life to the full. And so, you know, I kept coming back and I kept hearing more and more scripture, specifically what Jesus said about having life. And basically, you know, I was at a summer camp and they made it really clear that first of all, that there is a God. And I knew this because of, you know, creation. And I just knew it in my head. It just made sense. So there is a God. And not only is there a God, but he's a relational God. He loves us so much. It says in Psalms 139 that his thoughts for us outnumber the grains of sand. That's so many thoughts, more than I can even fathom. But yeah, he's really personally loves us. And there's this thing that the Bible talks about, about sin, you know, that we act in rebellion to God. God wants us to be, you know, walking with him and fellowship with him. And oftentimes we just go our own way. I know I've chose my own way probably every single day of my life and probably every hour. You know, it's all about me. So that's what the Bible calls sin, and that separates us from God. But the cool thing is that God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in his son, Jesus, that we might have eternal life. And just all these truths became clear to me at once. And not only is there those truths, but God makes it personal. Jesus says that I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears me and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him as friends. And I really felt God knocking on my heart. And maybe some of you guys have stories like that, too. Like, you know God's getting your attention. He's calling you out specifically. Well, at this point in my life, God was very real, and he was getting my attention. So I just simply, through prayer, said, God, I trust you. Jesus, I know that you're Lord, and I want you to come into my life. And just ever since then, I've had so much hope, and I've had relationship with God. It says in the Bible that we receive the Holy Spirit, and we get to have this constant communication with him. And I just want to end just saying about this hope, you know, it's it's nothing really cheesy. 
let's see, two weekends ago, I got in a really bad car accident. We were going up to the mountains, and we hit a corner that had ice, and we're probably going a little too fast, and we just slammed into the snowbank, and we ended up rolling the Jeep one and a half times, you know, broken glass everywhere. The engine was running, smoke billing out. But overall, what I want to share is that I know it was God that protected me, and we all had this sense of calmness. And even if I would have died, I know that I would go to heaven based on what the Bible promises and, you know, because I received Jesus Christ. So just not being able to fear death and just having God's security, that's the reason for the hope that I have, and that's my life story. I'd like to invite you to connect this week. We're going to be meeting in the Student Life Center in room 119 at 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday. Again, that's at the Student Life Center, room 119, 7.30 on Tuesday. And why don't you check out New Hope this morning? They meet at the Storyteller Durango 9 Theater at 10 a.m. Give them a shot. They're a great place where you can grow in your faith and you'll be accepted and loved wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Get all of our previous shows at eternityimpact.blogspot.com and please let us know what you think. We appreciate your comments and questions. Finally, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's our hope, that as you evaluate the evidence you heard today, that you'd come to him realizing that he loves you more than you can ever imagine. Thanks so much for listening. And have a great Sunday. Oh